There are three sections in the book of Galatians. Chapter one and two is one section, three and four, and then five and six, and they all deal with grace. God's unmerited, undeserved favor and kindness toward us. And we enjoy the blessings of God because of what Jesus did for us, not because of anything we have done or can do. We receive grace, that beautiful acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. And to recap these three sections of Galatians for you, chapters one and two are all about Paul's personal experience with the grace of God, how God's grace had worked in his life. Chapters three and four are about understanding the grace of God. It's a teaching about the theology of grace. Chapters five and six is practical. It's about living in the grace of God, how we can do that. And when we talk about the freedom of the gospel, you know, it can be a a tricky subject because those who are naturally drawn toward legalism, And whatever you think about yourself, most of us are naturally drawn toward legalism. When you talk about the freedom of the gospel, many will say, well, wait a minute. I mean, if people hear, if people go to a church where you're standing up and teaching that we're saved completely by what Jesus has done for us, if they hear that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if they hear that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are paid for no matter what, then aren't people gonna take living for God in an unserious way? Aren't people going to naturally abuse that grace and take advantage of it? And those same people will then think, well, you know, we gotta, we gotta come up with a system that prevents that. How can we de-emphasize grace to make sure that, that people don't run wild with it because people can't really handle this sort of radical message? So whether it's because we're not ready to give Jesus all the credit for our salvation, or whether it's coming from a place that people won't take living for God seriously, the church has struggled from day one with the idea of the radical nature of the gospel of grace that Jesus preached. And it's all because we struggled to grasp the truth that the gospel works from the inside out. We've talked about this a lot. Legalism says be good and then you'll be accepted. But the gospel says you are accepted. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're a new creation. And now God's spirit is gonna work in you to naturally lead you to walk in righteousness in a way that you never could on your own. Here in chapter five, Paul's gonna urge the Galatians to not compromise the truth of the gospel message just because they might be a little scared of how radical it really is. And then in our next study, Paul's gonna address the person who says, oh cool, well the gospel means that I can go on sinning as much as I want with no consequences. We're gonna talk about that next week. So let's jump in. Chapter five, verse one, Paul says, stand fast, underline, stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. The word therefore in that verse just means in light of everything we just talked about in chapter four, the glorious truth that we are heirs of our heavenly father, co-heirs with Christ Jesus through faith, not works. We're like Isaac, not like Ishmael, all that stuff. If that makes no sense to you, go online and listen to our study on chapter four. And what Paul is saying here is even more emphatic in the original Greek. He's actually literally saying, for freedom, Christ freed you. The whole reason Christ freed you was that you would be free. That was the whole point. And the freedom Paul is talking about in the original Greek is in what's called the aorist tense, which means it's a single past event that is now completed. Those who are in Christ have been set free from the curse of sin and the burden of the law. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, there's nothing more that needs to be done for you to be free. You are free. You've been set free. However, here's that big but, but while we cannot lose our salvation eternally, we can lose the experience of being free and living free in this life. We can in this life choose to be enslaved once again to burdens like fear and condemnation and feelings of inadequacy should we choose to go back to living under things like legalism rather than living under grace. We can be like a freed slave who keeps showing up to work for their brutal master every day even though he no longer needs to. 
We can return to the things that held us in bondage before and live out the rest of our earthly life in bondage even though we are eternally free and secure. The insight that Paul gives us, write this down, is that we have to actively stand in the freedom of the gospel. It's an active verb that he's talking about. We have to actively stand, hold our ground in the freedom of the gospel. The idea is there's gonna be things that are gonna wanna move you away from that and you have to consciously hold your ground. We have to be intentional about regularly confessing the freedom that we have in Jesus and refusing to allow any thought or teaching that goes against it into our lives. And this is how it works, by the way, in all areas of life when it comes to faith. We have to stand in faith in every area of life by agreeing with what God says. We have to be active about living in faith. This is why Paul warns the Galatians going on in chapter five. He says, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage that Paul is talking about refers to anything, anything other than the freedom that is found in the grace of God. Because if you're living under anything other than the grace of God, you're living in bondage. And everyone's living under something or someone. Everyone's serving something. And if you're serving anything other than the grace of God, you're living in bondage. You see, the Gentile Galatians had previously lived under the bondage of hedonism. They were in a culture that prioritized pleasure above all else, just pursue and follow through on your fleshly lusts, pursue pleasure at all costs by all means. That was the bondage they were under. And Paul says, okay, you've been freed from that. You were freed from the bondage of, of hedonism, from being a slave to sin, and now you're instead going to go to a different kind of bondage. You're gonna go to the bondage of the law. He's saying, why are you trading one kind of bondage for another when Jesus has set you free? Why are you going back to bondage again, even though it has a different format? And the interesting implication here is that the person who is amoral has little to no morality at all, like they had when they were living in the pursuit of hedonism, and the person who is morally self-righteous, doing everything they can to keep every rule and be a good person, both people are equally in bondage on different sides of the spectrum. Some are in bondage to the law, others are in bondage to their flesh. They're, they're both under bondage. Write this down. Jesus is the only God who sets those who serve him free. All other gods entangle us in a yoke of bondage. All other gods entangle us in a yoke of bondage. Until Jesus becomes the God of your life, you're just moving from one form of bondage to another. If you began in bondage to some sort of legalism, maybe you were raised in a strict home or a very orthodox Christian upbringing, often when you're raised in that environment or come from that, you think that when you finally get out of your house or go to college or get out on your own, you think that you're now being free when you can do whatever you want but what the Bible says is the reality is you're just moving from one kind of bondage to another. Your whole life was being controlled. You were enslaved by legalism here. Now you think you're getting free, but all you're really doing is, is now you're a slave to your own lusts. You can't make good decisions because you're just living like an animal and you're equally being controlled over here just as you were over there. You're just trading one form of bondage for another. Everybody's serving a God, but Jesus is the only God who sets those who serve him free. Years earlier in Jerusalem, Paul had been accused of preaching cheap grace, salvation without circumcision or any of the rules, rituals, or regulations of the law. And that led to that first Jerusalem council we learned about where the issue was discussed. And it was Peter who stood up and said to those who were advocating for the law, it's on your outlines, Peter said, now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter was saying, why are you telling them to live under the law when our fathers couldn't do that successfully? We couldn't do that successfully. And why are you telling them that that's a way for them to get to God when it hasn't worked for us? 
He says it's the grace of God that's gonna save us and them, the Jews and the Gentiles. So what Paul is actually doing here in Galatians is he's quoting Peter, who had earlier used this concept of a yoke of bondage. And he's not doing this in any small part because the Judaizers were basically headquartered in Jerusalem. They came from there. And so they said, well, in the Jerusalem church, which is the true church where people do this right, the apostles are, are teaching what we're teaching, that it's Jesus and the law. And so Paul essentially hearkens them back to, hey, remember what Peter said at that first Jerusalem council about the yoke of bondage? Even Peter agrees with what I'm saying. We're on the same page. It's salvation by faith and by grace alone. And whatever yokes of bondage have entangled you in your life, Jesus has already taken them upon his shoulders in the form of the cross. He bore those yokes of bondage. He bled on them so that we could be free of them. And when Jesus says we're free, we're free. But we have to stand in it. We have to walk in it. We have to make sure we don't become entangled again with another yoke of bondage. Verse two, he says, indeed, I, Paul, in other words, me, Paul, the apostle, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. He's not referring to circumcision in the sense of the physical act. He's referring to it idiomatically. He's using it to refer to the entire Mosaic law, that whole system of keeping the law. He's speaking about those who would say, my goal in life is gonna be to earn salvation earn my way to heaven by keeping the Old Testament rules, rituals, and regulations. In our context today, it would be like those who say, I'm gonna go to heaven by being a good person, trying to live a good life. That's what's gonna get me to heaven. For any non-Jewish man, any Gentile man, the starting point of living by the law would have been the physical act of circumcision. And so Paul says, if you choose to go that route, you Galatians who are thinking about doing this. If you choose to live under the law, then you are choosing not to experience any of the benefits that Jesus won for you through his life, death, and resurrection. Because you're gonna be making the choice to be judged by God on your own merits rather than receiving God's gift of the righteousness of Jesus. This is what a person does today who says, I'm gonna make it to heaven, whoever God is, by being a good person and living a good life. Well, God is Jesus. I'm not interested. I'm just gonna choose to instead do my best to be a good person. You're making a conscious decision to reject Jesus living and dying in your place and instead say, I'll be judged on my own merits. It's not gonna go well, spoiler alert. Now, please understand this. The Judaizers might have believed in Jesus. Some of them might have, but they added to Jesus. They added the law to the gospel. Now, when they did that, they turned the gospel into something that was not the gospel. And so Paul says about their version of the gospel, he says, in that version of the gospel, Christ will profit you nothing. Jesus doesn't do anything for you. Those Jesus and gospels that are taught by cults cannot save you. And God will not tolerate a Jesus and message for one reason. It implies that the work that Jesus did on the cross was not enough to save us. It takes away from what Jesus has done. And so you better believe that our Heavenly Father is not okay with that. He's not okay with that. He's not okay with just saying, oh sure, that's a new interpretation, that's fine. He's not gonna let anyone diminish what his son Jesus did on the cross. So make a note of this. It's because you cannot add to the work of Jesus without subtracting from the work of Jesus. You cannot add to the work of Jesus without subtracting from the work of Jesus. If it's Jesus and something else, then you're saying that just Jesus is not enough and you're lessening his work. Verse three, Paul says, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. Again, he's speaking to men who are gonna be circumcised because they wanted to go live under the law. He's saying if you wanna try and do that, you gotta keep the whole law perfectly, which is impossible. Only a blindly arrogant person would say, oh yeah, I can totally do that. If you choose to live under any of the law, then God is gonna hold you accountable to all of the law, whether you like it or not. It's on your outlines in James 2.10, it says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. 
You see, we're not allowed to just look in the Old Testament and, and pick out a few little bits of the law that we think we can do because we like them and they make us feel just a little bit more holy and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep those. That's not an option because those laws don't make us any holier. We're already covered by the righteousness of Jesus. It doesn't get any more righteous than that. The old school Seventh-day Adventist who insists that Saturday worship is the only appropriate day to worship on, they also better be keeping the Passover and every other feast ritualistically and the rest of the law. They can't just pick and choose. They can't just say, no, no, the day we worship on the Sabbath, that's really a big one, but, but some of this other stuff we don't have to do. And also, they, they shouldn't be driving to their Saturday meetings because the Old Testament law says it's illegal to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And if you know how the internal combustion engine works, technically, they should not be driving to their services. They're violating the law. They can't just choose one thing and say, I'm, I'm gonna do that. But I'm not gonna worry about that. We've graduated past that. The Bible says you wanna do some of it, you gotta do all of it. So Paul says, keeping that in mind, guys, you might wanna really think through your decision to live under the law. Verse four, you have become, underline, estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have, and then underline, fallen from grace. You've fallen from grace. Those are strong, strong words from Paul. He's using the phrase fallen from grace in the most literal sense here. Speaking to the Galatians, he's saying, remember the wonderful grace of God, the grace we used to sing about, we used to thank God for in our prayers, talk about and rejoice over. He says, you've, you've lost it. You're not living in it anymore because you've rejected grace in favor of the law. And by doing that, you've become estranged from Jesus himself. There is no grace and the law, it's grace or the law. So as you embrace the law, you become estranged from Jesus. Paul's saying that this issue, trusting in the grace of God to save you, it's an acid test for genuine faith. If a person begins saying, well I'm trusting in Jesus to save me and the fact that I do this, or I'm trusting in Jesus to save me and the fact that I do these things, that person will either repent and return proving that for a season they were an estranged child of God or they'll never repent and they'll just be proving that they were never saved in the first place. What I love about this though is the simple reminder that if we're going to have any type of relationship with Jesus, any kind of relationship with him, it has to be based on grace and there are no exceptions to this. It doesn't matter if you're a, a grace person or not. If you're going to ever relate to Jesus in any way, through his word, through prayer, through worship, through meditation, whatever, that's only possible through the grace of God. And when I begin living in legalism rather than grace, I begin moving away from the Lord, away from intimacy, away from fellowship with the Lord. I begin to become estranged from him. And I would encourage us to really take that seriously. Don't just gloss over that. Understand that as we embrace legalism, we reject grace in the same motion. As we welcome grace, we reject legalism as well. It's an action opposite reaction type scenario. So write this down. Living under grace draws me closer to Jesus. Living under the law estranges me from Jesus. It estranges me from Jesus. And then in verse five, Paul says, for we through the spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Underline the word hope. We wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The only way to be made righteous is by believing that Jesus was righteous in your place and by faith receiving his righteousness. That's our hope. We're the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. And if you know yourself, I mean really know yourself, then every time you hear that, something inside of you will go, thank you, God. The Greek word that's used there for hope is the word elpis, elpis. It's not weak like our English word for hope because we use that word to say things like, well, I hope the weather is nice tomorrow. I hope the traffic is good on the way to work. Elpis is the absolute expectation that something is definitely going to happen. It's awaiting a future event that you believe is gonna happen with absolute certainty. 
And Paul is saying we've been made right with God and we can live today based on the certainty of our future. The absolute eventuality that we are and will always be right with God. The certainty that we will be made right with Jesus, we will be made like Jesus and we'll spend eternity ruling and reigning with him. The certainty that we are heirs with Christ Jesus. You see, the non-religious person has no idea where they will be a million years from now. And religious, legalistic people, they hope in the weak sense of the word that they'll be good enough to make it to wherever they believe good people go. So they have to live with anxiety, performance anxiety. They can't relate or look forward to it. But the gospel gives us a rock solid hope about what our future is and only the gospel can do that. The gospel radically changes the way I live because instead of me striving to be someone I'm not or trying to will myself to be a good person, the gospel makes me say, okay, this is who I am in Jesus when I look at the Bible. This is what I have in Jesus and these things are certain. They're absolutely certain. They have nothing to do with how I will live the rest of my day and the rest of my days. So if this is who I am, if this is what I have, if these things are certain, then how does it make sense for me to live in the here and now? That's what the gospel does. This is why we have to think, we have to study, we have to reflect, we have to meditate on things like our salvation, our justification, our adoption, our inheritance, our future glorification. We have to spend time reflecting on the gospel. I can tell you that you can never reach the bottom of the gospel. You can study it in all the angles and you'll never get anywhere close. But I wanna challenge you, do you think about the gospel or, or in your mind do you think about the gospel as that's something that I needed to understand so I could be saved and then it had served its purpose? Or do you think about the gospel regularly so that your mind is focused on who you are and what you have in Jesus and then you can live from that understanding? Because the more we fill our minds with those realities, the more we live for those realities. That's how the gospel works its way from the inside to the outside of us. Do you want to be a more loving person? Then study, meditate, reflect, and think on how much God loves you. And as you think about that, as you're affected by those truths, it will work its way to the outside of you and the way you treat other people. Do you want to live for eternity and the things that matter most? Then begin to reflect on, meditate, and think about eternity. Do you want to feel like you have hope? Then turn your mind and your focus to all the reasons you have hope in Jesus. All these things are available to us through the Lord, through his word, but we have to focus on them in order to be filled with them. We have to direct our thoughts if we wanna have our actions follow suit. And I think many times we wonder, why don't I have this feeling? Why don't I feel this way? But we're not doing anything with our thought life to make us feel that way. How do I know I'm saved? I just don't feel like I'm saved, but we're not spending any time thinking about what the word says about the fact that we're saved. We're not digging into there to say, what does the Bible say about my salvation and about how secure it is and that God will never leave me and he's always with me? And so it's easy for us to complain and say, I don't feel this without focusing on those things, thinking on those things, meditating on those things, and then the feelings begin to follow. In verse six, Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Me doing all kinds of stuff that I think counts as good works doesn't make me right with God. And all the bad stuff I've done doesn't make me any more lost or any more hopeless. The truth is everybody is equally and completely lost without Jesus. But everyone is equally able to be saved through Jesus. And once we're saved, this concept means that we understand that God doesn't love us anymore when we're doing well and experiencing what we would consider to be success in the Christian life. And it means God doesn't love or accept us any less when we feel like we're falling short and experiencing failure in the Christian life. It means that as believers, our peace comes from knowing that our performance has no bearing 
on God's love for us or our place in his family. And he's always working good for us. That's where our peace comes from. If it was in any way connected to our performance, we should all be racked with anxiety. That would be the logical reaction. If we understand this, then our spiritual life will hopefully be a, a little bit less bipolar. Because we're all almost always being faithful to God in some areas and dropping the ball in some other area. God's love for us, write this down. God's love for us and acceptance of us has nothing to do with our performance. Nothing to do with our performance. And then Paul says, but faith working through love. Faith working. Would you underline working through love? You see, the only way we can do anything that God would actually consider good is by placing our faith in Jesus and allowing his spirit to work through us. Because when we place our faith in Jesus to save us, his spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives and he desires to lead and guide the way that we live. The Holy Spirit desires to be and should be the one calling the shots in our lives. And when we choose to submit to the leading of the Spirit in our lives and obey him, then we find ourselves doing things under his prompting and those things are good from God's perspective. In other words, as we talk about a lot, the fruit, the byproduct of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer is love. It's love. The believer is not driven to work for the approval of God. Good works flow out of the life of the believer because he's already approved by God. So God works through him and his spirit works in him. Paul is speaking to that part of us that's drawn to legalism. That part of us that says, oh, would you just tell me what the system is, Jeff? Is, is it the law? Is it rejecting the law? Just, just give me a checklist. Give me three action steps that I need to take here. And Paul says there is no system. There's only a relationship. In the place of legalism, there's faith. And through faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. And when you allow the Holy Spirit to lead your life, he will lead you to produce good works that are pleasing to the Lord. And the reason that legalism is, is so appealing to us is because legalism sidesteps relationship. Relationship requires real love. It requires getting to know someone. It requires appreciating them for who they are, not just what they can do for you. It's not just transactional if you want to have a genuine relationship. The problem is there's no way to fake a real relationship. You have to actually invest in it. Real relationships require commitment. They require time. They require us to engage our hearts. And legalism is so appealing because we're lazy and legalism lets you sidestep a relationship with God. That's why our flesh is so drawn to it. It's easier to have someone say, oh yeah, you want to have a relationship with God? Here's what that means. You got to light a candle every now and then. You got to say these words over and over every now and then. You got to give this amount of money every now and then. Show up on these dates at this place, and that's pretty much what's on the list. And now you have a relationship with God. Something in us goes, oh, I like that. Because I can do all of that without even engaging my mind or my heart, and then I can just do whatever I want the rest of the time. And that's no kind of relationship at all, and we all understand it, but we would love the easy out. Because the fleshly part of us says, how can I get all the benefits of belonging to God without any of the investment or commitment that an actual relationship requires. Legalism, and there it is, and we're drawn to that. That's why God won't stand for it, because he's all about a real relationship with his children. He is so about a real relationship with his children that he laid down the life of his only begotten son, Jesus, to have a real relationship with his children. Just like any of us as parents would be devastated if any of our kids came to us and they said, hey, hey, here's the thing, Dad. I know you like talking to me, finding out what's going on in our life and like eating together, but you know, from now on, our relationship is gonna be represented by this candle. I'm gonna put it right here in the living room. Every morning, I'm gonna come and light it and I'm gonna say the words, I honor you, Dad. And then whenever you look at that candle, you will know that we have a relationship. We'd all be devastated because that's not a relationship. 
That's not a relationship at all. So why anyone would think that a heavenly father who's higher and better than earthly fathers would accept that as a relationship makes absolutely no sense. The only reason people believe that is because people want to believe that. Because it's easier than a real relationship. The gospel tells us the incredible truth that we are loved for who we are. You say, Jeff, how do you know that? Well, the Bible makes it clear. God doesn't love us because we have something to offer him. We got nothing to offer him. Absolutely nothing. He loves us because he wants to enjoy us, because he made us for a relationship with him. That's the purpose that we were created for, to know him and enjoy him forever. And so the Lord invites us into a relationship with him where he takes care of everything we need. So God says, I want you to come into a relationship with me. And he says, there's nothing you need to do. Everything that is needed for you to have a relationship with me has been provided for by me through my son Jesus. The righteousness you need, the good works you need, he's provided all of that. So we don't even have to say, okay, Lord, I'll I'll have a relationship with you because having a relationship with you is the only way for me to earn my way to heaven. Then it's transactional. So God set up our relationship with him so that Jesus takes care of everything so that the only thing in our relationship with him is the relationship, is for us to go through life having a relationship with him, being led and guided by our heavenly father in relationship who loves us and wants good for us. He set this whole thing up so that we could just enjoy him. And out of our relationship with God, out of that, we learn how to love other people, not for what we get from them, but for who they are in and of themselves. That's the goal of this progression, that we would experience the love of God, someone who loves us not because we have anything to offer other than our relationship. That's all we have to offer. And when we experience that love, the idea is that we would then learn how to love other people the same way, not for what we can get from them, but for who they are, for who they are, who God made them to be. Would you write this down? God loves us for who we are, so that we can be free to love him for who he is and learn to love others for who they are. God loves us for who we are so that we can be free to love him for who he is and learn to love others for who they are. And don't miss this. The gospel frees our conscience from the guilt of our imperfect performance and it frees our motivations from the drive to perform in order to prove our worth or to prove our goodness. If we let it, the gospel means that we can wake up every day if we choose before we've done anything and we can begin our day by saying, thank you Lord that through Jesus I'm righteous and through Jesus I'm loved and I have absolutely nothing to prove today. That's what the gospel means. We can begin every day that way. I have nothing to prove today. And then our day And our motivations are freed up to become about, okay, Lord, what do you want to do today? How do you want today to go? Who do you want me to talk to? What opportunities do you want to give me to love and serve other people to enjoy you? But something that's not on the agenda is having to prove myself in any way or earn any type of approval. There's real freedom in that. Verse 7, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And so the picture here is an Olympic runner who's doing great, they're running strong, and then someone cuts in front of them, causing them to stumble or fall over, lose their focus. That's the idea here. Paul's saying that's what the Judaizers have done to you. Verse eight, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. He says, you guys were doing so good. Stop and think for a minute. Who got in the way of the relationship that you guys were enjoying with the Lord? It's not God who's trying to lead you away from a relationship and get you back to rules instead. So think about who's actually trying to lead you to do this. Verse nine, underline this whole verse. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Leaven is basically yeast. It's that small ingredient you put in bread that permeates the dough as it bakes and causes it to rise. And in the scriptures, leaven is consistently used as an idiom for something negative, usually sin, that needs to be gotten rid of. It's also used in scripture to highlight the way that sin can quickly and easily spread like a single cancer cell metastasizing. Here, Paul is using leaven as an analogy for bad theology, specifically the law-based, works-based, so-called gospel of the Judaizers. And I think this is really important because Paul is telling us that when it comes to theology, when it comes to orthodox Christianity, there are some beliefs that are essentials. They are non-negotiables. There are some beliefs where we cannot give even an inch of wiggle room because any movement away from the core belief is a movement away from the gospel that saves us. So we can't move even an inch away from some specific beliefs. And if you haven't figured it out yet, Paul's letter to the Galatians makes it clear that salvation by faith is a theological essential of the faith. That means we can't turn a blind eye to those who teach salvation by works. We can't turn a blind eye if someone says you're only saved if you tithe. We can't consider them Christian under the guise of unity or different strokes for different folks. They're teaching another gospel that Paul says is no gospel at all. A good analogy would be the way that Canada has national and provincial borders. Our national borders are what define us as Canadian. If you're inside these borders, you are part of Canada. Our national borders are like theological essentials. If you hold to this group of beliefs, like salvation by faith, then you're within the national borders of Christianity. But if you don't hold to those beliefs, if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you're outside of the borders of what is Christian. You're not a Christian. It doesn't matter if you claim to be, you're not. Any more than a person on a boat going past Canada who claims to be Canadian is Canadian. They're not just because they say so. You gotta be within the national borders. Then within Canada we have provincial borders. And these are the non-essential beliefs that differentiate us within Christianity. There are laws that differ from province to province and some provinces have some wacky laws but they're still part of Canada because they're within those national borders. In Quebec, I'm sure there's a bunch of crazy laws about maple syrup because maple syrup is a really big deal in Quebec. Here in BC, we might say, well, well, it's good, but I don't know that it's that important. And I know you guys are like, but it is, Jeff, it really is. <laughs> the point is that there are essentials that define what Christianity is, and those are like national borders. Then there are non-essentials, things that differentiate us within the faith but we can still be Christian brothers and sisters. There might be some provinces within Christianity that have some wacky laws, some wacky beliefs on the book, but they're still within the national borders. They're still Canadian, they're still Christian. Paul is saying, listen, salvation by works is outside of the national borders of Christianity. It's not orthodox. So don't tolerate even a little bit of that teaching because it's not Christian. Legalism often begins with pure motives. It often begins with good intentions. There might be a group or a church that deeply desires, genuinely desires to honor the Lord by walking in holiness and living righteously. That's a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful motivation. It's a wonderful thing to want your brothers and sisters to do as well. So what happens though is some of these groups, these fellowships, these churches, these movements, they begin to put some stipulations in place, some some rules in their fellowship in order to help their members. And before you know it, those things become equal with scripture. Because very quickly it becomes a case of, listen, if if you're serious about the Lord, you'll do what the word says, but but you'll also do these things. Where where all we've done is we've looked at the word and and we've applied it to modern day life and, and so we've put these rules into sort of a modern day context. And so you should do what the word says, but, but also these other things that we've come up with. If you're serious about God, quickly it becomes, well, well in fact, if you, if you don't follow these other rules, then by implication, you're not really serious about God. And if you're not serious about God, then, um, I mean, are you even saved? Are you even saved? Many of us might have grown up in churches that 
did this sort of thing, whether it was playing cards, you know, that's the devil's work if you're playing poker or something like that, or if you ever swam in a pool where boys and girls were in at the same time, I've heard of churches that were, that was like huge no-no, adding all these extra rules and then putting them on par with scripture, often enforcing them with more zeal than what's actually in the Bible. And the thing I always think about is, you know, the Pharisees, these hypocrites, these legalists who were the chief antagonists of Jesus when he was on the earth. They're sort of the villains of the gospels, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees started out as good dudes. There was those 400 years essentially where not a lot was happening spiritually, where Israel was just in the spiritual wilderness before Jesus and John the Baptist showed up on the scene. And it was more than a century before that, it was the Pharisees who were a group of men who got together and said, let's get back to the scriptures. Let's get back to living for the Lord. Let's pray that God begins to move in Israel again. And so they began searching the scriptures and said, let's begin living this way, calling people to, to live by the law, which was the right thing to do at that time, and, and calling them to, to live in righteousness and pursue the Lord. Good thing, good motivation. But what happens? Oh, this is what the word says. So, well, what does that look like? It looks like these 10 rules that we just came up with. So let's teach what the scriptures say, but let's also teach these 10 rules, which are basically the same thing as scripture. And, and before you know it, their own instructions came on par with the scriptures. And they had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of extra rules. And by the time Jesus came around, they had no spiritual fruit at all. They were just hypocrites and legalists focused on rules rather than a relationship with the Lord. But they started out with a good motivation. This is why back in verse one, Paul warned the Galatians not to become entangled again with legalism. Because that's what legalism does. It entangles you. If you give legalism a finger, it'll take the whole arm. We're saved by grace, we're saved by Jesus, and what Jesus did was enough. So Paul says don't tolerate even a little bit of legalism, not even a little bit of leaven. The idea that you could picture in your mind is that it's like a plane flying to Hawaii whose GPS system is one degree off. And you might think, come on, Jeff. It's still a GPS system. If it's only one degree off, that's not a very big deal. But what happens is the distance you travel becomes greater, you get more and more and more off course. And if you were flying from Vancouver to Honolulu, over that amount of distance, you would end up 300 miles off course by the time you got to Honolulu. Paul is saying, if it's even a little bit off the truth of the gospel, a little bit of legalism, he's saying, be careful, you're gonna end up a long way off course, just like the Pharisees did. Write this down. Salvation by faith is an essential Christian doctrine. And the believer is to reject even the smallest attempt to depart from it. It's an essential Christian doctrine and if you're a believer, you are to reject even the smallest attempt to depart from it. Because it'll set a course that will cause you to end up a long, long way away from the grace of God. Then in verse 10, Paul says, I have confidence in you in the Lord, would you underline in the Lord, I love that phrase, that you will have no other mind. I love that Paul says I have confidence in you in the Lord because here's what Paul is saying. He's saying I believe you guys are saved. I believe you have the Holy Spirit in you. And so I'm confident that the Holy Spirit in you is going to convict you and draw you back to the truth. You see, Paul's hope wasn't in the Galatians' intellect or reasoning skills. His hope was in the Holy Spirit that resided in them because Paul knew that the Holy Spirit never gives up on us, ever. He never stops calling us to repentance when we stray. The Spirit never stops working to lead us back to the truth when we begin to believe a lie. That's why it's so powerful when we speak the word of God to each other because when we speak the scriptures to one another, when we encourage, when we rebuke, when we instruct, the Holy Spirit in each of us says yes when we hear the truth spoken to us. The Holy Spirit in us agrees with truth when we hear it spoken. The Spirit in us testifies and affirms that what we're hearing is truth. Now if we're rebellious, we might still choose to reject it, but deep down we know it's the truth. Not just because we know it intellectually, but because the Spirit within us testifies that is true. What they're saying is true. So I'll just say this, parents, if your child is resistant, 
is rebellious, is not walking with the Lord, keep speaking the scriptures to them. That friend who is strayed from the faith, keep speaking the scriptures to them. Because if the Holy Spirit is in them, if they were ever saved, then they're always saved and the Spirit is in them and the Spirit is gonna resonate with what you're saying and they might resist it, but it's not gonna be easy. So keep speaking the scriptures all the time, all the time to each other. Paul knew that as he spoke the truth of God's word to the Galatians, the Holy Spirit would be affirming what he said and convicting them of their wrong beliefs. That's why Paul had hope. And then he says, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Talk about a sobering word. What Paul means is that God the Father is not pleased with false teaching. He is not pleased with those who are teaching that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. And he's going to deal with it. Paul is basically talking like your mom did when you got in trouble and she said, well, just you wait till dad gets home. That's what Paul is saying here. He's like, listen, I don't have to come and judge those guys. God's going to do it. And so they better repent because the Lord is not pleased. Verse 11, and I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? then the offense of the cross has ceased. The implication seems to be that some of the Judaizers were seeking to sow even more seeds of confusion by claiming that Paul, who was not there at this time, had actually gone back to preaching circumcision and preaching the law. And Paul just points out the obvious, saying, well, if that's true, then why are they still persecuting me? Why are they still hassling me? Because we'd be on the same team if I was preaching circumcision, but they're persecuting me because they find the message of the gospel offensive. And they found it offensive because the gospel meant that all the things that they found their identity in had gone away. Their circumcision from birth, the law, their special status as Jewish ethnic people. The gospel meant that none of those things had any bearing on their salvation. None of them. In their mind, the gospel stole all that away from them and they found that very, very, very offensive. But as we've talked about many times already in this study, Men were never saved by keeping the law. It's always been by faith. And then classic, classic verse to finish up today. Verse 12, Paul says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. However your Bible says it, I'll tell you what they're saying. Paul is saying those guys who are teaching a false gospel and telling you that you need to be circumcised to be saved, I wish they'd go even further and castrate themselves. That's what he's saying. God bless to us the reading of his word. Paul says it, and, and here's the thing, he says it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because it's that big of a deal. And uh, I forgot to put it on the screen, so I'll just have to hold up the sheet here. And I, I thought that the best way I could actually convey the point that Paul is making is uh, through this sassy Beyonce meme right here, which just says, Judaizers, to be saved you must be circumcised, Paul. Well, then why don't you be super saved and emasculate yourselves? That's pretty much what Paul is saying right there. He's saying, if circumcision is so spiritual, then why don't you take it a step further? Just cut it all off. That's what he's saying. It's right there. It's in the Bible. My boys are delighted that it's in the word of God as well. Paul says there's nothing spiritual about that. Nothing spiritual about cutting off your flesh. You want to do that for health reasons or traditional reasons? That's cool. But don't think it has anything to do with your salvation because it's always been by faith. It's always been by faith. Well, I want to wrap up by just asking you what, what you need from the Lord emotionally. Where are you at? How, how are you doing? Do you need peace? Do you need hope? Do you need faith? Do you need joy? And I want to challenge you with the truth that whatever you focus on in the word of God, God will fill you with. If you focus on the hope that is presented to us in the word of God, you will be filled with the hope of God. If you focus on the peace that is given to us in the word of God, you will be filled with that peace. If you focus on what God has done for you, the gospel message, you will be filled with gratitude. If you focus on the truth that you are loved, you are accepted regardless of what you do, you will be freed from that stress and anxiety that you're not good enough. But if you don't choose to focus, you have no right to complain that you don't have the feelings. You have to focus on how you wanna feel. But we cannot focus in one direction 
and then lament the fact that our feelings are headed in another. We can't focus on all the things that could go wrong in our life, all the things that aren't going right in our life, and then wonder why we don't have peace. We have to choose to say, I'm gonna focus on the truth of the word. You never leave me, you never forsake me, you go before me, you go behind me, you hem me in on every side. You're causing all things to work together for good. You've gotta focus, and then the feelings will follow. And so I just wanna encourage you that you have access through God to whatever you need emotionally, whatever you need. The Holy Spirit is the counselor, the counselor. And so I would encourage you to receive his counsel through the word and to focus your mind, even in this coming time of prayer and worship and communion, on on what you need right now that is available to you through God. And please know this, God, God doesn't perceive this as like, oh, you're just coming to me for what you can get from me. He's a loving father who loves to provide what we need. He loves it because if we don't go to him, we inevitably look for it in other places and we inevitably can't find it. So he loves it because to our heavenly father, it's honoring to him when we look to him for what we need. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you are our provider, not just practically, not just physically, but in every sphere of life, every realm of our existence, God, including our emotional health, Lord. You are the one who provides everything we need if we will choose to go to you and receive. And so, Father, right now, we would just adopt a a posture of being willing to receive, admitting, Lord, that we all have needs emotionally that need to be met, and admitting, Lord, that our, our default like legalism, is to look for something easier that inevitably won't fill us, that won't satisfy. So Father, we do, we open our hands to you, we open our our lives and our hearts and our minds to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to focus our thoughts on the promises that you've made to us, that we might be filled with the abundance of your spirit that gives us peace, that gives us joy, that gives us hope, that gives us rest and and every good thing. Would you fill our mind with thoughts of you, with promises from your word, with testimonies we've accumulated over the course of our days that record your faithfulness to us, Lord? Would you help us to meditate even in this coming time on your goodness, on your love for us, on the freedom that we have through Jesus and the gospel, Lord. Minister to us, Lord. Would you minister to our minds? Would you minister to our souls, Jesus? Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.